I often feel in December like I'm walking around in a fog, you know? Like, there's a lot going on. Uh, there's some holidays coming up at the end of the year that there's a lot of expectations around those holidays. And so there's like, oh, this feels like pressure. Um, I'm, I'm consuming a lot of sugar and fat, so I just sort of feel, you know, just kind of gross. And, and, and the days are short. And it's just, it just, December feels weird to me uh, and, and so different than the rest of the year. And, and maybe, I don't know, like all of my, all of my ambition and goals kind of go out the window at the last month of the year. I don't know if you guys get like this, but I sort of get like diet, exercise, who cares about that? You know, it's December, right? And then sometime around December 27th, uh, I start getting very like, all right, it's game on. You know, like the calendar is going to turn over. It is now going to be 2019, and that's a blank slate. That is like a blank page. I can do anything I want in 2019. It is the new thing. There's like so much room for activities and so much room, so much possibilities that I could have here in the new year. Do you guys get like that at the end of the year? Because I, I totally do. Anyone else get like really focused, really like forward thinking? Yeah, so um, and typically what we do when we, when we do that is we start thinking about goals, and we go, okay, this year I'm going to accomplish this. And, and a lot of times our goals fall into some really neat categories. I'll give you some examples around fitness. Oh, I'm going to get the best shape of my life this year, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to exercise this many days. I'm going to do this. And diet. I'm going to, all the stuff I ate in December, I'm not going to eat it anymore ever until next December. Like, I'm just going to get really, you know, put the eggnog away. It's time to get serious. Uh, relationships. I, you know, I want to be in relationship with these people. I want more of these people, less of these people, that, you know, that kind of thing. I want to get to know my mom better or whatever. Um, faith. This is the year. I'm, I'm, me and God, we're going to get it tight, and I'm going to read, and I'm going to read through the New Testament, and all these things. Career, you know, promotions or, or job, change job, get a job, like whatever, this, this is the year for that. Uh, financial, this, I, I want to do better and, and kind of hit these milestones. We do this kind of stuff all the time, and we do it particularly at the beginning of the year. But I think that if you drill down into all of those goals, all those categories of goals, and you had to pick one goal underneath all of those, I think you would pick relationship. Not just the relationship's goal, but underneath all of those other things are relationships. Underneath fitness, it's like, I want to get in better shape. Well, why? Well, because probably if you drill down enough into that, you'll find out that there's relationships under that. Uh, if, if you're single, you say, oh, I want to get in better shape to attract a mate, maybe. Or if you're married, you say, I want to get in better shape so I have energy with my spouse, or I want to have ener- energy to be with my kids or something. But underneath all of our other relationships are, are is the, all under all of under all of our other goals are relationships. You, you, money, I want to buy stuff. Well, why? Because I want to share it with and I want to go visit something with this other person. Like, relationships are at the heart of the thing. In fact, if you only pick one goal for the year, like if we're sitting here in 2020 and said, man, what made 2019 spectacular? My guess is it had to do with relationships. Um, if they were strong, uh, you can endure a lot of things. If your relationships were poor, that makes a lot of other things harder. Um, it, that, that, that's the heart of the thing that's, that's underneath. Relationships are the make or break for us. And so in this series, for the beginning of the year, I want to focus on uh, the main thing. We call it the main thing. It came to me a couple months ago. I was like, let's just start January off talking about what really matters, what is the core, what is the heart of our faith, our life, our purpose, why we're here. Uh, you've probably heard the phrase, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing right? It's like a cliche or a meme or something like that, and there's something to it. We need to keep uh, our focus, 
so that we don't drift because it's easy to drift into a whole bunch of distractions. Robert Brault says, we are kept from our goal, not by obstacles, but by a clear path to a lesser goal. A lot of times, it's not just the obstacles that get in the way. We just find something else to instead focus on, and we drift away from the main thing. So for this series, I want to talk about what is the main thing in life, um, and, and I, want to, I want us to look back at the Scripture. The Scripture... The Bible contains timeless truth that speaks to, and the reason it's still relevant today that we would talk about it thousands of years after it was written, it contains timeless truth about our deepest needs, our deepest longings, our deepest desires. It speaks to those things. Yes, culture has changed in a couple thousand years. We still want the same kind of things, and we still struggle with the same kind of things across all cultures. And so the Bible speaks into that stuff. And the Bible is going to point us to the main thing. And what the Bible will tell us is that the main thing is not a thing. It's not a what. It's a, a who. It's a, it's a person. Let me show you. There's a guy in the New Testament that's written about in, in kind of the second part of the Bible, a guy named Saul. And Saul grew up Jewish and very, very Jewish. You know how people can be like kind of Jewish, like they have a Jewish relative or like, yeah, we went, you know, synagogue occasionally, like one big thing. Or there's people who are very, very Jewish, right? Where it's like uh, religiously in, in the way they dress, the head coverings. You, know, you, you see this, if you go around Jerusalem, you see a lot of this, uh, the way they cut their hair. Um, Saul was the very Jewish kind of Jewish guy. And um, he grew up learning all the rules. And, and, and if you're growing up a Jew, yes, you want to be in a relationship with God, but Primarily, that relationship is a, it, it functions around rule-keeping. There are 612 laws in the Old Testament, and then they had laws about the laws. So they had, you know, 1,000-plus laws that they're trying to follow. And Saul was very good at that. He's very good at religiously checking the boxes, following the laws, doing all of the right things that people are supposed to do to be a good Jewish boy and girl in that day. Saul's really great at that whole thing. And then he has an encounter with Jesus. And in doing that, it changes him. Saul, uh, Jesus meets Saul and changes his name to a guy named Paul. He calls him Paul from, from that point going forward um, and, and helps um, Paul realize that life is not about checking all those boxes and keeping all those rules. It's not about the what of a religious system. Life is about the who. It's about being in a relationship with Jesus. And so Paul writes a letter about it, and I, and I want to read a little bit to you from that. It's the church in Corinth. The letter, uh, 1 Corinthians, it's, it's recorded for us in, in the New Testament. And listen to what he says uh, when he starts talking about basically the main thing in life. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll start with verse 3. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. All right, let me stop there for a second. Paul says, hey guys, I, I gave to you what I learned and this is the, the main thing. This is of first importance. This is the heart of the thing. This is, what I, this is what I proclaim to you. This is what I taught to you, the main heart of the thing. Now, before we read what he's going to say, think about for a second what you would say if you were writing that letter. Let's say you wrote a letter. You ever do that exercise where they're like, write a letter to yourself from 10 years ago and tell yourself like what things you wish you would have known for the last 10 years. You, know, you kind of hit the highlights, and you, you do that, and you go, man, make sure that don't ever date that guy. That was a mistake. Uh, when you go, when you get this opportunity for this job, take it. You know, that kind of thing. You might say these things. Um, but you would, you would quickly focus on what are the main important things. And, and so here's my question. If you were writing the letter, 
hey, and, and I said, what is the main thing? What would you write down as the main thing in life? Money? Getting money? Having money? Um, spending money? I don't know. Um, career, would you say the main thing is that you get on the career track and get that right because everything else is going to flow from that? Would you say um, that a spouse is, or, or a dating relationship, that's the main thing? You, once you get that right, everything feels great and it's going to be better for you. Just get that in place. Would you say children? Man, I have kids and they're so important to me. Uh, my kids are the main thing. Like, what would you say is of first importance if you're writing that letter? Because Paul... Uh, discover something. Because if you don't have an answer to what is the main thing, man, that's, there's some despair in that. That is like staring out into the abyss. Like I don't, we all hit that moment in life where we go, man, what is this all about? What is the main thing? What is the purpose? Why are we here? What, what, what are we doing? I mean, yeah, I'm existing. I'm trying to get a job and I'm working and I'm paying rent and I'm, you know, seeing my family or whatever. But where is this all going? What is this about? And that can be a, 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 a lonely thing. It could be a, a, an empty thing. And Paul figures it out, what it's about, and, and that changes everything for him. It gives him roots in a rootless world. It helps him feel grounded in a culture that's not grounded. It, it gives him hope in a hopeless society. Like, it changes everything once Paul gets the main thing and keeps it the main thing. And listen to what he says. Let me read the verse to you again. Moving on, it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, let me stop there. Paul says, here's what's first importance. It's a who, not a what. The main thing is a person, not a system, not a religious philosophy. It's not that. It's, it's a person. It's, it's Jesus, that Jesus Christ. If you think about it, it's pretty remarkable how the Bible holds together in this. The Bible, we think of it as a book. Oh, it's a book, the Bible. There's, it's got, you know, covers and paper in between. It's a book. It's not a book. It's a library of books. It's 66 different books, some of which are letters. Some of them are history books. Some are poetry and songs. There's like a bunch of stuff all put together, and it's called the Bible as if it's one book, but it's 66 books written by over 40 authors, written over the period of several thousand years in different geographical locations. It was written in three different languages. And despite all that diversity of thought and, and authorship and, and geography and time, all of that together points to Jesus. The books in the Old Testament, the oldest stuff in the Bible, foreshadows Jesus' coming. Then the New Testament starts with writing about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then everything after that is about his impact and letters like this writing back about who Jesus was. And then the book of Revelation at the end talks about what it's going to be like when Jesus comes again. So all of the Bible, remarkably, even though it was written in all those different spaces and times, it all holds together around a person, not a system. And so when you read the Bible, here's the truth. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. He's the heart of, of the whole thing. Now, if you're a Christian, you probably saw that coming, right? What's first importance? That Christ. Because you're Christian. The word Christ is built into the word. It's like a Christian, right? Like, we go, okay, yeah, we're Christians. I know it's supposed to be about Jesus. Like, that's, that's the heart. That's why, we, that's why we gather. That's why we worship. But if you're not a Christian in this room right now, 
I would imagine this is a little weird for you at, in, in some ways because you've probably been around churches and you know of Christians and, and there's a piece of this that's got to sound like, Jesus, really? What's all the fuss about? Like some dude who lived in the Middle East a couple thousand years ago, I guess he walked around, said some nice things. They say he healed people. I guess he died on a cross. Like I've heard some of those details, but like what is the big deal? Why is, why is he the main thing? There's other things I could put in as the main thing. Like, why this guy? Well, I want to explain that just using the rest of what, what Paul says here. And I think this will be a good refresher for Christians that, hey, let's reset at the beginning of the year. This is what this is about. And it, it'll be good for those of you who aren't a Christian so you understand, here's what the fuss is about. This is why we, we get into this. This is why we sing songs, Jesus, there is no other that I adore. This is why we sing this. Uh, look, look at how Paul talks about it. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll, let me just read on. For I deliver, delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, then, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul says, here's, here's the deal. Jesus um, is the heart of this thing, and Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. There's a lot wrapped up in that. Let me see if I can explain that a little bit. Um, the way Paul is seeing the world, and the way people would see the world in the ancient world, is that we, we sin, we mess up. Now, a Jewish idea of sin is that it's very deep in us. We are broken sort of in our core. When we sin, we have, it's a heart problem. Um, there, there's, there's a depth. Our will is broken, okay? So Paul says, uh, Jesus died for that, for that thing in you that screws up. Uh, Jesus died for that. Now, if you're Greek and you're not a Jew, you still have a concept of sin. You might just see it differently. For the Greeks, they would, they would be familiar with the idea of the Roman culture. They'd be familiar with the idea that we blow it, that we don't always do good things. They just wouldn't see it as a heart problem. They'd see it as a mind problem, that your thinking is bad. You have some bad thoughts in there, therefore that causes you to do some, good, some bad things. Um, but both cultures, the, the Jewish culture that Paul came out of and the greater Roman culture, would be familiar with the idea that someone's got to pay for that sin, that you blow it and something needs to be sacrificed in order to appease God or appease the gods or something. In the Jewish system, they do like, you know, old, in the Old Testament, there's like an animal sacrifice, that kind of thing. And Paul take, builds off of that idea that everyone would already be kind of familiar with. And he says, here's the deal. Jesus did this. Jesus, the person, died for all of your sins and my sins, all of our stuff. Those things went with him onto the cross. And it says, in accordance with the scriptures, meaning this has all been written about, this has been predicted for hundreds and thousands of years. It all led up to this moment. Before, after, all of human history is pointing to this guy dying for all of us to make us into, in a right relationship with, with God. That's that's what Jesus has done, and because he makes us right before God, that's why he is actually the main thing in life. And so, number one, what we get from this is this. The, the death of Christ establishes our worth and, and gives us our identity. How do you know how much something is worth? Well, it's pretty easy when you go to Target, right? Because it's like there's a price tag on it. You go, okay, well, this is worth this money. But 
it's kind of weird if you think about it because what something is worth is not really, it's not like an arbitrary number. It's like, it's, it's sort of an agreement among all of us. Hey, would you pay that much? Would you pay $10 for a house? I mean, I, 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 okay, yeah, sure. Would you pay $200,000 for this house? I, no, I wouldn't. So to you, it's not worth that. But it, as long as somebody pays it, that's what it's worth. Basically, how you determine the worth of something is the maximum amount someone will pay for it. So you can get online, you could look at Zillow. If you own a home, you could look at Zillow and say, what is my house worth? I, uh, I just looked it up the other day. Like, what is my house worth? Oh, okay. But it's not really worth that unless somebody agrees to pay for it. That, that's how it works. What is the maximum amount someone will pay? That's how we determine how something is worth. It's like market forces, right? Um, and in the death of Jesus, we see how much we are worth. Because Jesus is God's son and he dies for us. I would argue there's no greater way to show worth for someone than to die for them. Like, think of it this way. How many people in the world are you willing to die for? Can you think of names? Like, I would take a bullet for this person. My guess is, if everybody thought through that, my guess is your list is short. There's only a couple people you'd say, I, I would die for this person, right? That's, and that's fine. But the fact that they're on that list says, these people are extremely valuable to me. I love these people so much, I would die for them. And their value is far more than money to you. Sure, you can show someone how much they're worth by paying them a lot. We do this in jobs, right? I think you're really good. I'm going to give you this much, right? And that's, that's one way of assessing worth. But the greatest way you could assess worth is to, say, or to show value is to say, I will actually not just pay you, I will die for you. And this is what God does for us. He looks at us and he goes, there's tremendous worth there. I love people so much, I will die for them. And he shows us our, our, our value. And maybe if you're a follower of Jesus, you've heard that before, but I want you to hear it fresh here in 2019. Your creator knows you and loves you and dies for you, and that establishes your worth, and it gives you a sense of identity. Identity, the idea of identity, is huge in our culture. Has anyone noticed? I think it's the biggest thing going on in culture right now. Um, and we're going to actually do a whole series on it uh, starting in February around this idea of identity. But it's a big deal because we're in a place as a culture when we tell kids, you can be whatever you want, you can be whoever you want. And then as adults, we kind of expand that out. We've been telling kids since they were little, you can be whatever you want. And we are taking that as far as possible. We're saying you can be anything and everything. And we're basically saying you get to choose who you are. And we'll get into this a lot more next month, but I just want to say up front, that is historically very weird that we would say that we are choosing our own identities, that we get to pick exactly who we are. Um, historically, that's not how anyone has thought about identity. We've thought more in terms of the, the, the people that we are a part of or the cultures, a larger part of the culture. We, we, we've said there are other things outside of us that help establish our identity. And I truly believe our identity must come from the outside. And when God says, ultimately, as our creator, if we are creatures and he is our creator, then he says, this is why I made you. This is what you are for. This is your purpose. That is the ultimate identity that, that we can have. So God says we are his child, that we are loved, 
we belong to him. And it, so it shows us, it gives us our worth and it shows us our identity. And then the second piece of this is the resurrection of Christ gives us hope and it gives us a future. Listen to how Paul talks about the resurrection back in that text. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then, he, and then Paul is, is establishing some some historical credibility to what he's saying. This isn't once upon a time this guy lived and he had a blue ox named Babe or something like that. This is like historical stuff that he's pointing to. He said, look, Jesus rose again. Then he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some fall asleep. You know, he, he points to these people and says, look, Jesus came back from the dead and lots of people saw it. They saw him alive, killed on a cross, pierced in the side, blood and water flows out of his body. They put him underground in a tomb. And then a couple days later, we were having breakfast together. This is how it went down. The guy was very dead and then was very alive later. And this isn't just me saying this, Paul says. I saw it last, but lots of other people saw it. Cephas, the guy, Peter. Peter sees it. The, the 12, 12, inner circle 12. He says more than 500 people saw Jesus alive at one time. And, and look at that detail. He said, most of them are still alive, although some of them have fallen asleep. Why does Paul point that out? He's saying, look, lots of people saw Jesus alive again, hundreds of them. A lot of them are still alive. Go ask them. They will tell you they saw it. Some of them would die, but a lot of them are still, are still here. And he's, he's giving validity to this idea that, no, actually, Jesus came back from the dead. And look, if he came back from the dead, you should listen to what he's saying because he knows some things. He's got an inside track to God. And, and, and that resurrection, that coming back from the dead, gives us hope. Paul doesn't say it here, but listen to how Peter says it. 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter says, we have hope as followers of Jesus. And it's a living hope. It's a real thing. It's active. It's moving. And it's through the resurrection. It is because this guy died and lived again. We know we can die and live again. This is a huge deal in history. This is huge. Because everybody dies and everybody knows it's coming. We don't like to talk about it. We whisper about it when someone dies. We don't say die. We say pass away. We do, we do anything we can to avoid the reality that this is coming for all of us. And it always has. And there's no escaping it. And, and Paul and Peter and these other people discovered something that changed the game for them. They discovered that, oh wait, it's possible to die and then come back. It's possible that this life is only the warm-up. That there's actually a greater thing that's coming for us. And once they understood that, it changed everything. This is why Jesus is the main thing. He's not just the main thing in your past. It's not like I came to Jesus, I was baptized into him a while back. That was great then. It's not just the main thing back then. It's the main thing in your future. It's what happens when you die, you will be with him in eternity. But sometimes that doesn't matter to me right now. I'm like, great, I'm going to go to heaven when I die, but today kind of stinks. What do I do about this right here and now? And here's the deal. Jesus, uh, his resurrection and your future with him changes the way you live today, or it should change the way you live today if you think about it. I've used this example before a couple years ago, but I, I think it's good. I mean, think about, let's say you got a, a desk job, like a, 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 an administrative job, 
and you're just like cranking on it. It's kind of lame. Like some of you are like, I don't have to imagine that. I actually have that job, you know, whatever. Like, so you got this job and let's say your boss pulls you in January and says, hey, do this job all year. And at the end of the year, I'm going to give you $10,000 as a bonus. Be like, oh, that's cool. Like, that'd be good. Christmas time, a bonus. And you start planning how you're going to spend $10,000. What if your coworker gets called in as well? Similar personality to you, maybe similar temperament. Coworker gets called in and, and is told, hey, do your job, do the same thing all year. At the end of the year, I'm going to give you a million dollars as a bonus. How do you think that changes how the two of you do your job? One of you is like whistling while you work, right? One of you is like, this job is awesome. I don't care if it's mundane. I don't care whatever. Because, because what? You've got something in the future. Oh, I'm, I'm getting a million dollars. Like, this is going to be amazing. Who cares how this job is right now? I've got this thing in the future. What you believe about the future changes how you live now. What if you won the Powerball? And that junk was like a billion dollars or something last year. I was like, oh, you know, you see it like keeps going up and up, you know, and and uh, here's the deal. When you win that thing, you don't get paid right away. It's not like you turn in your ticket and they just hand over a bunch of money. There's like a delay, you know, like months. when then you finally go and then they start a system of paying you or whatever. Uh, allegedly. I'd, I've never done it, but I mean, that's what I hear. Okay. But here's the thing. If you won the Powerball like this weekend and you don't get paid till March, when are you going to start spending your money differently? March or Now. Now, right? You're, gra- you're grabbing cards. You're going to like go charge up everything. You're like, ah, I got, because, because this is coming to you, it changes the way you live right now. And you know it. And so the resurrection of Jesus, because it points to a resurrection of us, because we know that we have a future, it can change the way that we live in the present. This is why Jesus is the main thing. This is why uh, many people in this room are followers of Jesus and are Christians. Not because we love church, not because we love singing, not because we love praying or giving or serving. Those are all good things. But at the end of the day, this whole thing is about him. It's about Jesus. I don't do a lot of funerals. Um, We have a pretty young church, and so... When I get asked to do a funeral, it's usually someone pretty young. Um, I, I think over the last 10 years, I think back, I, I've done a funeral for someone who was 60, 50, 40, 32, and then last month for someone who was 17. And it's not the great part of my job. It is hard um, to offer words of comfort. I mean, c- considering doing a funeral for 17, a 17-year-old, I just thought, and I prayed, I said, uh, God, I don't want to do any younger than this. Like, I don't, I, this is horrible. Um, and it's hard because you want to offer words of comfort to people who are hurting and in anguish and pain and disappointment and loss. And that's what you're there for. And I know what I need to say and I know what I need to do and I know how I got to process my own emotions about it and how I have to get sort of mentally and emotionally ready to do that. But it's a hard thing. But across the board, when I talk to other pastors who do this for a living as well, and I talk to them about it, they all agree funerals are not hard if someone is young. That's not why it's hard. That adds another layer of things. Funerals are hard when the person doesn't know Jesus. 
when the person dies and they never really gave a rip about God. Because you know they're standing before God now and dealing with their life. And you want to say something hopeful and comforting and encouraging, and it's hard. And mostly what you say is, hey, the rest of us who are still here, let's make sure that we know Jesus and follow after him and get our lives right because one day we will die. You end up saying something like that. But the hard funerals are those for people who didn't care about God. It's hard to know the right things to say. Funerals for people who do care about God, who have given their lives to him, who have baptized into him, who are following after Jesus, those are celebrations, and there is a difference, and I've seen both. Those are celebrations. People sing. Yeah, we're sad the person's gone, but we're rejoicing for the hope of heaven. We, uh, as Paul says in Thessalonians, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. We're going to grieve for sure, but we're going to grieve like those who have hope because uh, Jesus has changed things for us. So this Jesus guy, he really is the main thing in, in life. And I don't know if you believed that when you walked in here today. I don't know if you're going to believe that walking out of here. But we need to talk about it and, and focus on him. And so for the next four weeks, what I want to do is, if, if he is the main thing, and maybe you're still unsure at that point, but if he's the main thing, let's just look at what he said. Because if he's it, I want to know what he's all about. Because if, if I'm going to follow him, I need to be about what he's about. And so we're going to spend the next, next couple of weeks looking at the things Jesus said was most important. And let's just start our year out getting those things and, and, and getting our focus uh, there. Because I, I truly believe it will change everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you for dying for us on the cross for our sins that you died for us according to the scriptures and that you rose again. God, may we recognize the centrality of that. God, we get so distracted by politics, culture, social media, um, sports, uh, money or lack of it, broken relationships. There's, there's so many things that swirl around and distract us and help us and make us sort of take our eye off the ball. God, help us to focus in you are where it's at. A relationship with you is the primary thing we want to get right in 2019. So God, may we pursue after you wholeheartedly this year. Lord Jesus, we, we love you and we want to follow you and serve you. In, in, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.